We've been looking at Jacob this morning. We're going to wrap up Jacob. This is the last chapter, chapter 35, with Jacob as a main character. He doesn't die until the end of the book, but he really takes a back seat, and his kids, his 12 sons, become prominent, particularly Joseph. And so that's what we'll jump into next week. We'll start looking at the life of Joseph, who's the 11th son of Jacob. So today is really a, it's a wrapping up. It's kind of a homecoming of sorts for Jacob. God finishes a lot of things that he started in Jacob's life. And the way we've been looking at Jacob is through this lens of personal transformation. God called him from the womb, and then he set about molding Jacob into being the man who could fulfill this calling on his life. And we'll see how that begins to round out today. So uh, chapter 35, verse 1. Then God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel and settle there. Build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you. Purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who's been with me wherever I've gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out and the terror of God fell on the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. So just to remind you, last week we looked... Jacob had, Jacob had settled in Shechem, which was in the promised land, and we looked at that awful story in Genesis 34, where his daughter Dinah was raped, and then two of his sons, Simeon and Levi, go and they wipe out the whole town. They kill all the men, and then all of the rest of the boys go and pillage and loot and plunder, and so Shechem is no more. And Jacob is scared, if you remember, that's what we saw in him. He's nervous that other nations are going to hear what they did to Shechem and come and attack them. And so God calls him and says, you need to leave, you need to come to Bethel, which is where everything started. Back in chapter 28, God appears to Jacob at Bethel. You remember that? Angels ascending and descending. And God says, I want you to go back there. Jacob says, if we're going to go back, we've got to purify ourselves. So you've got to get rid of, if there are any idols, if you remember we talked about household idols, think of them like a Barbie doll. That's about the size that they were, and everybody had one. And so when the guys went and pillaged Shechem, they probably picked up these things. They were probably made of gold and silver. And Jacob says, you've got to get rid of all of that. The earrings most likely had religious significance. You've got to get rid of all of that. You've got to purify yourself because God wants to meet us. This is the only place in Genesis where God tells anybody to build an altar. Every other time we see an altar built, it's because someone is responding to who God is. This is God saying, you build one. You come meet with me and build an altar because I'm going to meet with you there. And so this is all God's initiative Jacob says to everyone in his household, y'all got to get purified religiously. And then they're nervous about traveling. And so this idea of the terror of the Lord falls on all the other nations. So nobody messes with them when they're traveling. Again, remember, Jacob is incredibly wealthy. His household is huge. Dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens, maybe even more than that, people, massive amount of livestock. They're not going anywhere quickly. And so it, it is a bit nerve-wracking to travel, And God takes care of them in that. Verse 6, Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar and he called the place El Bethel because it was there that God revealed himself to him when Jacob was fleeing from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the oak outside Bethel. So it was named Alon Bakuth. So briefly, so Jacob gets there does what he's supposed to do. He builds an altar 
very unusual for a woman's death to be commemorated in Scripture, particularly a woman who honestly, it's the first time we've ever heard of her. Rachel was Jacob's mom, so Deborah was with her from the beginning, so most likely she was like Jacob's um, nanny, raised him. When he, was, when he left to go find a wife, she went with him. Really his only connection back to his mom, who most likely died while he was gone. So that's why that gets commemorated. That was his last connection to his mother. Verse 9, after Jacob returned from Padan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number, a nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up with him at the place where he talked with him. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him. He poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. So this is a confirmation of everything God has already done. So just to remind you, 20 years ago about, maybe a little more, Jacob, God appears to Jacob at Bethel. And he says almost all of these same things. This is chapter 28. This is their first meeting. Here's what God says to Jacob there. I'm the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you're lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. You will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I'm with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done everything I've promised. So what we just read is God confirming that promise that he made beforehand. So you've got promise, 20 years of difficulty for Jacob, very difficult 20 years for him, and then a reiteration of that promise. That's God to me. It's kind of like God saying you made it. I gave you this promise. You had 20 years of hardship. And you come out on the other side, and I'm going to remind you of all the things I want to do in you and all the things I want to do through you. And just to remind you, you're a new man now. If you remember back when he wrestled with God, he gets his new name. He goes from being Jacob to being Israel. He who deceives to he who overcomes. And I think what God is saying is, and remember, you left Jacob. You left as a deceiver. You're returning as Israel, as one who's overcome. I want you to remember that. You're a new man. Any of you who've ever been gone and come home after a period of time, it can be very difficult to, if you've experienced change while you're gone. Jesus says a prophet has no honor in his hometown. People who've known you for a long time, sometimes it's the, it's the most difficult for them to recognize, hey, I'm, I'm not the guy that I was. Whatever I was like in high school, that's not who I am anymore. Whatever you thought of me in college, I've grown since then. I'm not the guy from my 20s. Or That's, I think, what God is reminding Jacob of. You're not the guy who left. You've got a new name, and you need to live like it. Verse 16. They moved on from Bethel. While they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel, remember that's his favored wife, began to give birth and had great difficulty. As she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't despair, for you have another son. As Rachel breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Ben-Oni. Anybody want that? No, some of you are pregnant. You can use that name if you need. It means son of my trouble. But his father named him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar. And to this day, the pillar marks 
Rachel's tomb. So this again is this idea of completion. He's coming back home. He has his last son. Benjamin is 12 of 12. This is his last son. And then his Rachel, who was his pride and his treasured wife, dies. So again, you have this kind of wrapping up of things in Jacob's life. Verse 21, Israel, that's Jacob's name, moved on again, pitched his tent beyond Migdal Eder. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Billa, and Israel heard of it. Jacob had 12 sons, the sons of Leah, Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Rachel's servant, Bilhah, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Leah's servant, Zilpah, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. So what's going on there, Reuben, firstborn, Rachel dies, and then he sleeps with her maid, her servant, who's Bilhah, who is also a concubine. There's two, he has two half-brothers by this woman. It was a, that was an act of insubordination. That's him kind of laying claim to the house. Um, there's a place in Chronicles where something similar happens with one of David's sons. Doing that, sleeping with one of your father's concubines, was basically saying, this is mine now. And just like last week, when we saw Jacob's complete passivity, when Dinah is raped, he does nothing. It says he hears about it, but he doesn't do anything about it in terms of disciplining Reuben. He doesn't stand up. He doesn't take action. It just says that he's heard about it. We'll come back to that in a minute. Verse 27, Jacob came home to his father Isaac in Mamre near Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had lived. So now he's finally come home. Isaac lived 180 years, then he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, old and full of years. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So that's that idea, came home. So we've come full circle over the course of 20-ish years. Jacob left, Israel returns. And he returns with the wives, with children, with possessions. He, he returns in a lot of ways, having already walked in the fulfillment of the promises that God has for him. So here's what I want us to do. We're gonna, I'm going to give you a brief, hopefully, overview of Jacob's life. And I want you to try to peg yourself in that life. Where am I on this timeline? And then we're going to talk a little bit about how Jacob's story connects with ours, and we'll see if we can get some insight. So let's see this. I hope y'all can read all of that. So this to me is what, this is what happened in Jacob's life. This is logistics. And then we'll look at what's going on, what I think is going on in his heart. This is what's happening in his life. First, you have this calling. This is from before he was born. God says this. Two nations are in your womb. This is what he says to um, Jacob's mom, Rebecca. Two people from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. So before anything, Jacob is called. He's elected, he's chosen to fulfill a particular task. Then what we see is Jacob in the flesh. We don't see, Jacob lives for 147 years. We just get little snippets of his life. So this by no means summarizes all of who he is. You can imagine even in your life, as long as you've lived, if somebody tried to summarize it in ten pages, there's a lot that would be left out. But what's put in there is instructive for us. The first two scenes that we see from Jacob are him conning his brother Esau out of the birthright and flat stealing the blessing of the firstborn from his father Isaac. So with Esau, he takes advantage of Esau's stupidity, um, impulsiveness, and gets the birthright. 
And then he just flat lies to his dad, pretends to be Esau in order to get this blessing. That's Jacob in the flesh. We said he's self-reliant, and for him that self-reliance comes across as conning, as scheming, as conniving. That's what he does. Then after he steals this promise from Esau, gets the blessing from his dad, Esau is so mad he wants to kill him. So his mom says, Jacob, you need to leave for a few days. When he calms down, you can come home. Go, go back to my family. Find yourself a wife. I'll let you know when things are safe. And that gets to this first point of desperation. It's chapter 28 where God meets Jacob in Bethel. When Jacob is describing that experience, he says, I left and all I have was a staff. He's broke. He's got no prospects. He's got no family. He's got, no, he's got nothing. For him, it's the low point of his life. He's worked so hard to get this birthright, which now means nothing because he's, been, he's basically, not basically, he's totally, he's being kicked out of his house because of what he's done to his brother. These, this promise, this blessing that he's just stolen from his dad means nothing because he's having to leave because his brother's going to kill him. So he leaves with nothing and God appears to him that night in that promise that we just read, I'm going to take care of you. Jacob's response is not to enter into a relationship with God, it's to strike a deal with him. What Jacob says is, okay, if you do that, I'll give you back 10% of everything you give me. It's a contractual relationship at that point. It's not a relationship at all. Jacob acknowledges God, but doesn't enter into a relationship with him. Then we have this 20 years with Laban. Those lines go up and down because Jacob experienced both of those things. Ups. He marries Rachel, who's the love of his life. He has 11 sons and a daughter. God blesses him financially in incredible ways. He builds his house both his family and his finances. All of that's wonderful. There are also lots of downs. Laban, who's his dad, I mean his father-in-law and his employer, is a cheat. He's more cunning than Jacob. He cons him into marrying Leah, who he does not love. Changes his wages, according to Jacob, ten times. Doesn't follow normal employment practices with the shepherd, so there's a lot more weight and responsibility on Jacob than there should have been. It's a time of ups and downs for him, but as we read the story, we begin to see some character change in Jacob. And that leads to what I think is the absolute lowest point of his life when he's at Peniel. If you remember, he starts reading the tea leaves and says, they don't want me here anymore. Laban doesn't want me here. His sons don't want me here. I'm getting rich at their expense, and they're, they're not happy. God appears to him and says, you need to leave. It's time for you to go home. And so Jacob leaves. And he sneaks off. He runs away because he's scared. And rightfully so. Laban chases him down. And God intervenes and speaks to Laban in a dream and says, don't touch Jacob. And so they make a treaty. And it's, it's, it's a line in the sand. Jacob, you can't come back across this line. So it puts this back wall, this fence that Jacob can't cross. And then he's looking for it and he knows, if I'm going home, that means Esau. And the last I heard about Esau is he wants to kill me. And so he sends out some folks to find out if Esau's okay. And they come back and say, he's coming, and he's bringing 400 men with him. And Jacob reads that the only way he knows how, which is bad news for me. I don't have a shot if he's coming at me with 400 men. He's going to wipe me out. And so in that moment, he splits up his camp, says at least half of my stuff can get away. He sends everybody across the river, and he spends a night by himself. And that's that night at Peniel, and God appears to him in the form of a man, and they wrestle all night long. 
And so what in that moment is Jacob's lowest point? He's at his most desperate because he is fearful for his life and everything he has. Esau has the power to take it all away. Jacob can't fight against 400 people, and now he can't run, he can't run because he's drawn this line in the sand with Laban that says, I won't cross it. He's hemmed in. He's wrestling with God. God dislocates his hip. And in that moment, there's a conversion. Jacob goes from being the heel grabber to the God clinger. That's what it does in that moment. He's wrestling with God. God dislocates his hip. Jacob does all he can do, which is just hang on to God. That moment of conversion where he begins to depend upon God. God gives him a new name, which symbolizes you're a new man. You have a new identity. You're going to go from being the deceiver, Jacob, to being the one who overcomes, struggles and overcomes. That's Israel. And that's, again, his lowest moment becomes his point of conversion. That often happens for us as well. And then you see God begin to restore things to Jacob. He's reconciled to Esau. God miraculously works in Esau's heart. He's come out. I think he was, I think he was coming to kill Jacob. There's no other reason to bring 400 men. And something happens that same night that God's working in Jacob's heart. He's working in Esau's heart. And when they see each other the next day, there's a reconciliation and a reunion there. So he's restored to his brother. He gets to come home again. I don't know if he ever thought he was going to get to go home again. 20 years, he never hears word that things are okay from his mom. I don't know if he thinks he's ever going to get to go home. We saw he's restored to his dad. God confirms you've got a new identity and affirms and confirms this calling that through Jacob, the nations of the world will be blessed. So those are the logistics of what's going on in Jacob's life. Can we see the next? So this to me, and you can disagree, this to me is what's happening in Jacob's heart. The black is what's happening relative to God, and the white is what's happening relative to his own, to his flesh. So to me, at the beginning, Jacob, zero recognition of God. None at all. He's 100% self-reliant. He's using all of the gifts and the strengths that God's given him to scheme, to get what he wants. Then we see him moving in the direction he acknowledges God. That's at Bethel. There is a God, and if you'll take care of me, then I'll give you some stuff. But he's still taking care of himself. He's not fully trusting God. I don't know if you remember, when uh, we see this when he's meeting Esau. And he makes a plan. I'm going to split up all that I've got in half. And then he prays. And he acknowledges, God, you've got to take care of me. And then he concocts another plan. I'm going to send all of these gifts to Esau so that by the time he meets me, I'll have appeased him. So we've got plan, pray, plan. And that is that middle box where Jacob lives for a long time. He acknowledges there is a God. He recognizes, hey, God's blessed me with children. He's blessed me with all of this livestock. But he's not fully willing to trust God yet. He's still scheming a bit. He's still creating plan B's in case God doesn't come through for him. Remember when, for the wages, he has a dream. And he goes to Laban and says, give me the speckled and the dark and the spotted animals. That's in response to what God showed him in a dream. But then he does that weird stuff with the sticks, with the sheep and the goats, to try to encourage them to produce speckled and spotted and dark offspring. And we know that's nothing to do with it. Looking at a stick when you're mating that speckled doesn't make a speckled you. It doesn't work that way. But for Jacob, again, he's responding to revelation, but he's still not fully trusting God. He's still scheming, planning, helping God in his own ways. And then ultimately where we see him is depending on God. That's what we see when he meets Esau. 
first time in his life, he goes first. He doesn't send his family in front of him. He goes first, and he's the first one that he saw meets, empty-handed. We see him say, listen, God's blessed me. And I'm, he bows before Esau. We've never seen Jacob humble before. It's just depending. He's rec- hey, if I'm going to be reconciled to Esau, God's got to do it. And we see that in him, and it's beautiful. Now, the other side of this, which is unfortunate, is Jacob also, he abdicates his responsibility as a father. We saw that last week and this week. He does nothing when Dinah, his daughter, is raped. He does nothing to hold Simeon and Levi responsible for slaughtering every man in Shechem. He does nothing for holding the rest of his sons responsible for pillaging and looting that city. He does nothing when Reuben sleeps with his concubine. He's become passive. This is what I think is happening, and I want you to think about this in your own life. So Jacob's strengths, really smart. He's strategic, he's confident, he's strong, not just physically strong, but he's internally strong, he's bold in a lot of ways. That's how God made him. That's Psalm 139. I knit you together. When God made Jacob in Rebekah's womb, he gave him those strengths. And what we see for the first 40-something years of his life, maybe more, is none of those strengths are submitted to God. All of those strengths are done in his flesh, if you'll go back to that other thing. All of his strengths are in the flesh. And we've said before, your strengths in the flesh cause way more damage than your weaknesses. Y'all remember that old Superman movie? Those three guys that came from the same planet as him, they had the bad black v-neck shirts. You remember them? They caused, they wreaked a lot more havoc because they had all the same powers as Superman without his moral compass. It's those strengths, the things that you're good at the gifts that you have, the talents, all of those things that God put in you when he made you, those things not submitted to the Holy Spirit, not done in the Spirit, not submitted to Jesus, that's where you're going to wreak the most havoc. That's when you're going to cause the most damage. And I think that's what we see in Jacob. If you, When we read through the story, the things that get him in trouble are not his weaknesses. It's all of the things he's really good at that he's doing in his flesh. And I think when he's converted... At Penny, when he wrestles God, he realizes, I've got to depend on the Lord and not on myself. I think what he does, and I want you to hear me say this, listen to all I'm going to say, he swings too far. He swings way over here and goes from saying, I'm not going to grab any more heels. All I'm going to do is cling to God, which is wonderful, except he releases all of his responsibility that we see as a dad. He, he doesn't function as a father Anymore. Now, these are grown sons and daughters that we're talking about, but they're still living under his roof, so they're still his responsibility, and he does nothing to discipline them. I think the same thing can happen for us. There's some things in us that God wants. He doesn't want to change these things that he's given you. When he knit you together, when he Psalm 139 you, when you become a Christian, he's not looking to change that. He didn't mess it up the first time. What he's looking for is for you to submit those strengths, those gifts, those talents, those abilities to him. That's what he wanted for Jacob. He didn't want Jacob to stop being smart. He wanted Jacob to be smart in the spirit. He didn't want Jacob to stop planning. He wanted Jacob to plan in the spirit. He didn't want Jacob to stop being bold. He wanted him to be bold in the spirit. And what Jacob did, which is the easy thing, was he walked away from who he was Instead of doing the hard thing, which is learning how to submit who I am to Jesus. 
For some of you, you're in that process. There's some things in your heart, and you've seen the damage that they've caused. And your, your tendency is to say, I'm not, I can't do that anymore. I'm not going to be that anymore. And my encouragement to you is to say, is this who God has made you to be? And if the answer is yes, then you can't change it, and you don't need to change it. Do the hard work of submitting that strength, that talent, that gift to Jesus. Do the hard work of learning what it is to be led by the Spirit in those areas where you're strong. It is in the flesh those things cause the most damage. And in the Spirit they produce the most fruit. You can't not be who God's called you to be. And that's not what he's about. When he makes you a new creature, a new, when you become a Christian, that doesn't mean that he erases everything he put into you initially. What he's looking for is take these strengths, take who you are, and submit them to the Lord. Real quick, and we'll wrap up. There we go. Elements. Three I'm looking at. There are others. Calling, personal development, points of desperation. Don't think about order. That's not helpful. Don't think about Jacob's sequence of his life. It's not a timeline for us. Oswald Chambers said, don't make a principle out of your experience. Let God be as unique with others as he was with you. So don't grab on to Jacob's sequence of events and say, I'm, where am I on his timeline? Look at the elements of his life and say, how is God using these to shape me? Because all of us have all of these elements. We'll look at each one real quick. Calling. We all have a work, a role to play in what God is doing. It's Ephesians 2.10. We're God's workmanship, creating Christ Jesus to do the good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do. We call that doing your deal. If you're breathing, then there's good works that God has for you to do. I don't want you to hear that as pressure. I've got to figure this out. I want you to hear it as purpose. There's more to my life than just going through my day. You have a role to play in what God is doing in our community. You have a role to play in what God is doing in our world. Your life is not for nothing. It doesn't mean you're going to be famous. It doesn't mean you're going to be powerful. You will be influential. But that, again, doesn't correlate to fame or to power. You'll have impact on people because of the Holy Spirit who lives within you. So if you're in this room this morning, hear me say, you have a calling on your life. Some of you see calling God's will as a tightrope. I don't want to fall off. It's so thin. See it as a river. Your responsibility is to get in, and he's going to take you where he wants you to go. You just stay in. How do I do that? Many of you know what your calling is. Some of you don't. If you don't know, here's the question you're asking. God, what does it look like for me to love you and love others today? That's the question you ask, and then you do what he says. God, what does it look like for me to love you and love others today? And then you live your life with your eyes open and your ears open. All right, what are my opportunities today to love God and to love people? That's what I'm doing. Until God hones that in and makes it more specific in my life, I'm doing that. That's staying in the river. And then God eventually is going to get me where he wants me to go. If you're going through days and weeks at a time where you can say, I'm not really certain that I'm loving God and loving other people, then you're on the bank. God can't get you anywhere because you're not wet. Simple, you can do that. Ask him and then be willing to do what he says. That's calling. You all have one. Again, don't hear that as pressure. Like, I've got to figure this out. Not at all. It's opportunity. You just stay in the river. God will reveal to you in his time. Next thing, personal development. Just like with Jacob. This is a huge stretch for us. Huge period of time. For Jacob, it's 
at least 20 years. For us, this is an ongoing process. God's doing multiple things. I just thought of three. Your character. He's trying to make you more like Jesus. Be aware, character is often forged and formed in the fire. That doesn't necessarily mean that things are going to be intense. It means they're going to be difficult. Often our character is formed through when we're stretched. Stretching for most of us is not fun. Those things are they're difficulties. Relationships and circumstances. If you find yourself in a difficulty, whether that's because you're listless and bored or because you feel like you're taking fire or whatever that is, however you're seeing your life, you're saying, this is difficult. The question you ask, God, how do you want to use this relationship? How do you want to use this circumstance to make me more like Jesus? That's the question. Then the second thing you can pray is, God, get me out of it. But the first thing you pray, how do you want to use this to make me more like Jesus? And then you can pray, change my circumstances. Competence, that's not a good word. I couldn't think of a better one. God wants to equip you for your calling. Joseph, when we get into him, we'll see that very well. He's a shepherd in Hebron, and, and he's going to become second in command in Egypt. Like, there's no, there's no line between those two things. You can't apply for this job. And so Jacob, how, does, how is Joseph going to get here? His calling is to save his family. The way he's going to save his family is by taking care of this food supply. The way he's going to take care of this food supply is by being second in command of the ruling empire of his day. He's a 17-year-old shepherd who's not even liked within his own family. There's no, again, there's no, there's no way to get from A to... It's not A to B. It's like A to some other language is what he's trying to get to. It's A to 112. There's no way of doing it. And what God does over the course of, I think it's about 17 years, he does some work in Joseph to give him the skills that he needs. Here, run this house. Run this jail. That's going to teach you how to run things. And it's going to move you from being an Israelite. You're going to actually, you're going to live life like an Egyptian. Because you're going to be in an Egyptian household. You're going to be in an Egyptian jail. And I'm going to get you in contact with people who know the guy who's in charge. Now, for Joseph, none of it feels right. Y'all remember Karate Kid, that old movie? What does Daniel's go and saying, teach me karate? Mr. Miyagi's handing him a rag saying, wax on, wax off. It's not until he fights that he realizes, hey, this is karate also. That's what God does with us often. We don't get how where we are now is at all helpful for where God wants us to go. It's only in retrospect that we realize, oh, I needed that. That whole thing was so I would meet that one person. That job was about that person, that relationship that I developed. I needed that skill. I needed this experience. This positioned me for where God ultimately was calling me to go. It's where trust becomes so important for us. So many of us, that's what he's doing in you. So the question, particularly if you're thinking, I don't really enjoy where I am relationally or in terms of work or just your lifestyle. God, what are you trying to teach me? How do you want to use, what are you trying to give me that will better equip me for my calling? And then try to approach your thing that way. One more. Hold on. Back. That's okay. Spiritual depth. God reveals himself more fully during this time. Jacob gets to know a little bit about God. And that's what he wants to do in your life as well. Recognize that spiritual depth almost always requires risky obedience. That's how God reveals himself. As he says, why don't you take another step and you'll see what I'm going to do in your life.
And so you want to be aware of that as well. God's trying to deepen our roots in him during this personal development. Last, now we'll go ahead. Points of desperation. Jacob had two major ones in his life. You don't need to go looking for these. Life in God will bring them to you. And so, but when they come, it's this recognition. This is an opportunity for me to to cling. It's an opportunity for me to depend upon God in a greater level. And it's also an opportunity for breakthrough. Personal development is kind of a long, slow climb. These points of desperation are like a turbo boost. They can be. They can fling you forward in your relationship with God. We always need God, but there are times when we're more aware of that. And that may be where you are this morning. You're acutely aware because of something going on in your life about your need for God. And if you could put a word on it, you'd say, I'm desperate. I've got to hear from him. He's got to move in this situation or we're done. I would say those are difficult times to live in because of the stress you feel. But they're also wonderful opportunities for you to depend upon God in a way that you can't when everything is rolling along. See it as an opportunity to cling more tightly to him. And just like Jacob, when you're clinging, tell him what you want. That's what Jacob did. I'm not letting go of me until you bless me. And so if you're in this point of desperation, what is it that you want him to do for you? And will you wrestle with him, ask him persistently until he responds yes or no? And so those three elements, your calling, which you have, you may not know that, but you have one, your personal development, and these points of desperation, God's using all of those things to ultimately prepare you for the calling that he has for you, for you to play the role that he has in your life. So we're going to close with this. We're going to have ministry teams, or ministry time, we'll have these ministry teams up in the front. We'll pray with you about anything you have going on. I would love particularly to pray for you if you feel like you're in one of those points of desperation where you really need God to speak to you or you need him to move because things are not awesome. And you may feel like, well, there are people that have it worse than me. There's always somebody who has it worse than you. So that's not, that's not the barometer that we're using is internally. Do you, need, do you need a breakthrough in some ways? That's the question. If the answer is yes, please let us pray with you this morning. You guys can stand up, Bo, if you'll come on back. God, I thank you for Jacob. I thank you for his life and the way it's an example for us. And I thank you that, like him, you've got a calling on every man and woman's life in this room. The youngest to the oldest. There's calling until we're dead. So, God, we want to live fully, obediently, faithfully, fruitfully until we're done. God, I pray for those who every time we talk about calling, roll their eyes and say, not me. doesn't apply. God, would you reveal to them, that's why I put you here. That's what you need to be doing. Here's how I've gifted you. Here's how I've wired you. Here are the places where you fit. Would you speak to them, God? Show them what it looks like to love you and to love others. God, I pray for those who are just in the process. It's just developmental. Would you encourage us and would we not grow weary in doing well? Would we not give up? Would we not miss the lessons? In the, would we just not miss the lessons? 
We want to be keenly aware of how your spirit's at work in our hearts and in our circumstances. We want to cooperate with him. And God, I want to pray particularly for those who are desperate this morning. God, I pray one for a willingness to say, I am. I'm desperate. And God, just like with Jacob, just like with Bartimaeus, I pray that you would meet these men and women at their point of need. You say you're the God who does immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. And I pray that you would do that in the lives of men and women here in this room this morning. In Jesus' name.